Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex, and I'm an MD finishing up a uh, Harvard MBA, a Stanford Master's, and an Oxford PhD in Computer Science, and I'm interested in investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Mike Natter. He's an endocrinology fellow at NYU Langone Health in New York City. He's also a freelance artist, contributor, and writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Mike has an MD from Thomas Jefferson University, a medical sciences certificate from Columbia University, and a bachelor's in neuropsychology from Skidmore College. Mike, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. We're so excited. Alex and I were just talking today and and we were looking over our list of upcoming guests. And this was really one we we were looking forward to for a long time because, and we were kind of chatting about this uh, earlier, all of our guests so far have been, you know, either consultants or entrepreneurs or, you know, and entrepreneurs in a very narrow sense, typically health tech entrepreneurs or biotech entrepreneurs and have been investors. And there's so much diversity of talent in the physician community, because I mean, it makes sense, right? Physicians tend to be very ambitious, very driven. And I like to think very intelligent people who care a lot about honing a lot of different skills. And there's physician comedians, there's physician artists, there's there's just a lot of really interesting artistic talent in the community. And you're very much representative of that, Mike, uh, on top of your sort of your academic and research credentials. So really excited for this chat. You have a very, very interesting story, Mike, one that I think our audience is really going to be inspired by. You were diagnosed, as I understand, with uh, type 1 diabetes at age 9, which must have been obviously incredibly frustrating and challenging. Can you talk to us a little bit about your battle with the disease, your your journey towards medical school, and how did it inspire you to pursue a career in endocrinology? Sure. Uh, so first off, Shad and Alex, thank you so much for having me. You guys are awesome and, and super accomplished. And I love what you're doing. I think this platform is a great way to kind of showcase and, and talk about more than what we are than just clinicians, I think, um, which is great. So thank you for having me. Um, yeah. So as you said, I was diagnosed early in life. So it was about two weeks after my ninth birthday. Um, but I think the story really starts well before that. So for me, um, you know, as we kind of chatted about before, my background is anything but medical. So no one in my family is in medicine. I um, never truly excelled, or in fact, I would go as far as say did rather kind of mediocre and in some cases poorly in the traditional hard sciences, math and science were just not as naturally um, as accessible for myself. Um, But I did kind of gravitate and more naturally excel in the humanities and specifically in visual art. So medicine was never really on my radar. I never really actually considered it as a potential career or even a passion. And then, as you mentioned, after being diagnosed, that kind of changes. And it changes for many reasons, at least for me. When you have a chronic illness, and that's something that you're dealing with on a daily basis, which ends up kind of, you know, type one is like an hourly basis, really. And in the uh, mid-90s, when I was diagnosed, the technology was such that you really, really needed to take care of yourself in a very, uh, you know, minute-to-minute way. I would prick my finger 12, 15 times a day. I would, it took a massive sample of blood. The glucometers were really big. There was no insulin pens. There was no real insulin pumps at the time. It was syringes, you know, and I had to carry my insulin around in coolers and stuff. 
And what it did was it opened up this whole world of physiology and, and pathology. And it made it so interesting to me because it wasn't just reading a textbook. It was what I was living and experiencing. And it, it was kind of eye-opening. And it made a what I thought was automatic process that the pancreas kind of took care of in the background something that became very volitional and obvious, um, you know, for a nine-year-old to have to kind of carry. And I was strangely accepting of it. Um, in many ways, I think being diagnosed with type one is almost more difficult to be diagnosed in adulthood because you've already developed your way of life and what you like to do and what you don't like to do. And as a kid, you kind of do what you're told. Like, I suppose if you're a good kid, you know, you wear what you're told, you go to school when you're told, you do your homework. And it became that plus now you check your sugar, you take your insulin, you watch your carbs, like all those things kind of uh, became a little bit more part of my, my natural life. It sucked. It still sucks. Like, let me make sure that's clear. But it was more accepting, I think, at that time for me as a kid. So that was what opened up my idea of like, this is interesting. But I still had this sense that I couldn't necessarily become a doctor. I'm not smart enough. I'm not, you know, motivated enough. I'm not good enough. Um, and I'm an art kid. Like, why would I, you know, go into medicine? And so I actually entered into undergrad with no inclination of going into medicine. And I studied uh, mostly art and neuropsychology. And it wasn't really until the tail end of my undergraduate career when I started to develop a little bit more of this academic confidence. I started to do a little bit better in my neuroscience classes. And I had a couple of really fantastic mentors. And it was then when I realized that, okay, maybe I'm not like an idiot. Maybe I'm not that dumb that I initially kind of, you know, drew myself as. Um, and maybe it doesn't matter that my strengths are in the arts. Maybe I could still be a physician if I tried hard enough. So I went for it uh, and I ended up going into a post back program. I did all my pre-medical courses um, there afterward. And I got very, very fortunate. Um, it's, I mean, it's already, my story is already long enough as it is. So I'll spare you the, the gory details, but I, I very narrowly got into one of the 30 medical schools that I applied to, and it was primarily because of my background as an artist that allowed me to get there. Really appreciate uh, all those details, Mike. And I, I think I appreciate how candid you are about your background and the self-doubt that you had, because I think it's something that honestly all of us have, but don't verbalize it in any meaningful way, especially in the clinical realm, because you're supposed to be strong, not only for yourself, for your family, for your patients. and for your colleagues because you're in this sort of high stress profession, but it's something that all of us struggle with. I know I had self-doubt. I was that stereotypical kid who was good at math and good at sciences, but it doesn't prevent you from having self-doubt. I think it's something that all of us go through. So really, really appreciate you verbalizing that. I think the other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, in, in some way, and maybe this is my bias, in some way, I think you're, you were better positioned to be a doctor than any of us who were interested in the sciences or we're good at math, right? Because you live through the experience of what it's like to be a patient. Like, you know that intimately well. And, and I can, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but perhaps you even had an advantage when you came as a first year medical student where, you know, some people probably never saw a patient and never shadowed, but you knew exactly what it was like to be go to the hospital to interface with, with clinicians and, and what it's like to take care of a chronic disease. I'm thinking to my cousin, who I'm actually quite close with, he grew up and he had Ewing sarcoma and had to go through a ton of, ton of operations, was in a wheelchair for a long time and, and walked with a cane up until honestly, very recently for decades. And that inspired him 
to become a, a physician. And now he's an anesthesiology resident in the University of Toronto in Canada. And he's absolutely thriving. And he's passionate about it. You know, I think I'm passionate about clinical medicine, but he's passionate about clinical medicine in a, in a fundamentally different way because it cuts very, very close to him. I don't know if any of that resonates, but I'm, I'm curious. I just imagine that, you know, you just had such an advantage of knowledge and awareness when you came to medical school compared to some of your colleagues. Yeah, no, Shad, you, you, you hit it on the head for me entirely. I, I think I think it's interesting and I think it's unfortunate in many ways because the admission process and the folks that kind of get um, sh like shoveled into medical school tend to be the people that are math and science whizzes and do well on tests. But at the end of the day, medicine, you know, it, yes, it's important and helpful to be intelligent and, and to do well on these types of tests and to have a wealth of knowledge, but it really starts to fall to the wayside. And I always say to like the medical students and the folks that rotate with me, every successive year after you get into medical school, that rote knowledge that those test scores, that testing ability counts less and less with your success and your, your progression. And your humility and your interpersonal skills and your humanism is really what allows you to do better, to be that fantastic physician. And I think it's a little bit unfortunate. And like, I actually don't think that you necessarily need to have a personal disease or a personal interface with the healthcare system to necessarily have that insight. I think anyone can have that. I think there's an empathy. Um, but that's what really separates a lot of the what I think are great physicians is we don't need to be the library anymore. We need to be a good librarian in terms of accessing the information and knowing when to go to where to go to find it or knowing what you don't know. And anyone can do that. But not anyone can get on the level of the patient and understand what they're going through and have that empathy and take the time. And just to have that interaction, which is an unspoken and difficult skill to learn, I think that takes a lifetime to craft. And a lot of folks kind of have it naturally. Um, but yes, having a chronic illness always is going to give you that insight. And especially if you end up going into the field in which you, you know, also have, have are a patient, um, there are countless examples that I could, and anecdotes I could talk about when my patients complain to me about, you know, their finger sticks and this and that. And they say to me, you don't get it. Like, you don't understand what this is like. And then you have that palpable shift in the room. The rapport just changes. And that kind of weight lifts when you're, say, you, know, you lift up your shirt and show them your CGM or you show them your, your callus fingertips. And you're like, no, no, I get it. I, I totally get it. And, you know, it's, it's, really a, it's a really beautiful experience. But again, I don't think you necessarily need to have and share that exact. You don't need that shared experience. You just need to be empathetic enough to listen and understand and, and, and relate on some level. Yeah, very well said. I completely agree there. And, and I think a computer is always going to be better at keeping a wide array of knowledge, which is, you know, our book is always going to be better at that. But humans have to be really good at what humans uniquely are good at. And, and that's, you know, empathizing, connecting with people on an emotional, like a combination of an emotional and logical level. And certainly no one's saying that, you know, you don't have to be intelligent to be a physician, but what we're saying is that's not sufficient enough. Like you need way more than that uh, in order to be a good physician. And I think you embody that. And even how you speak about your uh, experiences with your patients is, is really inspiring. I would love to sort of shift the discussion a little bit towards more of your artistic career. Uh, if, I, if I can uh, sort of drive it in that direction. You're a native of New York City, and I lived in New York City for four years, uh, arguably the best city in the world. I think some people from Boston will, will give me some flack for that, but it's the heart and soul 
of the art world in, in many ways, uh, at least in North America. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the city influenced your art and what were some of your inspirations in the art world growing up? Yeah, I, so I mean, obviously, I'm a little biased here as a New Yorker my, my entire life. I, I do think it's one of the, you know, it's the capital of the world, right? It's got everything. And it's this beautiful melting pot of cultures and, and, and different um, just experiences, just walking down the street, you get a different taste, flavor, experience, you know, visual intake, uh, every you can walk the same street and get a different one every day. And, you know, you take things for granted when it becomes um, kind of uh, uh, rote, right? Like if, if you, what you've always known as the baseline is your baseline. So it wasn't really until I think I moved away from medical school when I was like, oh, New York is very special. It's very unique. It's very different. So growing up, I mean, I, my, my parents were always very supportive of my artistic interests. And so they would take me to museums and the MoMA and the Frick and the Met. Um, but there's also other other um, less kind of uh, structural artistic influences for me, which was just the street art, just the things that you saw on the walls, um, the way that people would express themselves. The it's it's all over the city, um, and and interfacing with these different types of peoples, people with different backgrounds and artistic tastes and artistic expressions. I think for me was really eye opening um, because I had that mix of the kind of classic cultural art that is you know. Picasso and Van Gogh and Jackson Pollock, but then also the people that I can like be friends with and talk to and relate to and see what they're putting up on the wall and what they're putting up in their classes and stuff. And and for me, it was really just this really amazing, immersive experience that I think informed a lot of my art and who I am today. Very well said, Mike. Uh, you know, a lot of things to reflect on. It really resonated when you said, you know, sometimes we take places like New York City for granted. And, and I think a perfect example is what happened to the city during COVID, right? Uh, I had left. I was there for four years. I just remembered it as the most vibrant, beautiful, bustling city in the world. And then I left for a couple of years and I visited intermittently during COVID. And it just for a while, it's back to normal. But for a while, it, it really wasn't quite the New York City that we all like grew up to love. It's hard to maybe you can you can quantify it better, but it's it's more qualitative. There was just something missing. The streets weren't as bustling as they usually were. And people just weren't, you know, I guess people were never really nice, nice in New York City, but people just were on edge because everything was going on with the pandemic. And the other thing that I always like to say, and this is sort of tooting HBS's horn a little bit, but HBS seems like a microcosm of what makes New York City so great because New York City, especially, you know, I always think about the 1970s in New York City where punk music, hip hop music, salsa dancing was just born like in that decade in the boroughs of New York City. And it's not because people in New York City are naturally born more creative. It's not that. It's that people from all over the world with very, very interesting influences and perspectives come together in this relatively small confined area and just talk to one another, communicate and move the world forward creatively, intellectually, whatever you want to call it. And HBS sometimes feels like that. It's all these interesting people from all over the world in a tiny campus and, and you get to meet interesting people and do very interesting things. And I just was in New York City a couple of months ago. And for the first time, I think in a few years, it, it felt like the old New York City, at least to me again. So really, really appreciated your comments there. I think the last question I had before I hand it over to Alex, wanted to get a little bit philosophical for a while. There's a quote by uh, M3 Southgate. She was a physician and former deputy editor of, of JAMA uh, that goes, quote, medicine and art have a common goal to complete what nature cannot bring to a finish, to reach the ideal 
to heal creation. This is done by paying attention. The physician attends the patient, the artist attends nature. If we are attentive in looking, in listening, and in waiting, then sooner or later something in the depths of ourselves will respond. Art, like medicine, is not an arrival, it's a search. This is why perhaps we call medicine itself an art. As someone who practices both medicine and art with passion and dedication and does it at the highest level, can you describe how art has influenced your medical practice and vice versa? Oh, wow, that was beautiful. That was a fantastic quote. And yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And also just thank you for, for the, you know, your words of, of um, raised there. I, I definitely don't feel like I'm anywhere near the highest level, but I'm, I'm striving for it. But it, it comes back, in my view, I have, I have a few views on this. It comes back to what we were initially talking about, of having that empathy and not necessarily, you know, focusing only on this like intellectual multiple choice taking ability and this being a repository of knowledge and then regurgitation. Um, I, I think there is this idea that when you walk into a patient's room, they don't hold up a sign and say, which of the following five choices are my diagnosis. And that's how we're trained in medicine. It's all multiple choice tests. And I think that uh, people that are very math and science oriented or who are tested in this way believe in a very binary black and white system. There's a right answer. There's a wrong answer. It's not math. It doesn't work like that. There's a lot of gray. And I think when you look at the artists or the people that are trained as artists, the people identify as artists, they live in that gray. There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. There's an interpretation and in how they feel, how someone else feels. And there's never any going to be any kind of um, slam dunk, you know, this is exactly right. Now, obviously, medicine, there are some, you know, right, you know, situations, right? Like people can have a diagnosis and you build a case with your objective measurements and your physical exam and your labs to get to that arrival where you have a case to be made. But that doesn't mean that they aren't a person and have other things going on, or it doesn't mean that they have two different diagnoses or have a wrong diagnosis. Like all of that kind of plays into it. And it's being comfortable in that gray zone that I think artists are more naturally used to. But on the other side, uh, you know, in, in another vein, I also want to talk about this idea of, and I think the, the physician mentioned this, of, of seeing as an artist and, and observing as an artist. And doctors, uh, I forgot who said this quote, someone in my medical school class mentioned this to me, it one of my mentors said something that like doctors see, but artists observe. And the idea, it's, it's semantic, but the idea is, is worth flushing out in that when an artist is looking at nature or looking at something that they're going to interpret visually, whether it be painting or drawing or what if they maybe they don't see the apple and then try and draw apple because that would be a top-down process, a cognitive process where we already have a heuristic of what the apple looks like and we're trying to then iconic like make an icon of what that would be to interpret to give that sense, right? They don't see that. They see the shadows, the blacks and whites, the juxtaposition of values and hues and, and contour. And then they, in their skills that they've developed over time, try to use these kind of tricks of, you know, rendering and, and shading and so on to then give the illusion of those shadows, of those juxtapositions, of those contours, which in turn give you the impression of the apple or what they're trying to convey. And in learning how to observe like that, I do think that there's a one-to-one, -one, um, you know, uh, correlation to how physical exam works, we, how we pick up these things or how we analyze data, or how we, in our kind of um, body language, are able to pick up cues within the, the patient interaction and to create the rapport and to ask the right questions. And lastly, I actually think that at its core, 
visual art is a universal language that we're all kind of inherently born with. We don't have to learn how to do that. When you draw something for a patient, you've broken down a language barrier, an education barrier, a cultural barrier. If you're able to convey through an illustration or through a, you know, some kind of uh, cartoon, that, that means that we're all on the same page and we've leveled that playing field. So if, if that's what art is and we're born with that, then I actually think art at its very essence is a form of communication. And communication is so key in what we do in medicine because we need to communicate with our peers and our colleagues. We need to make sure we get that information across so that patient care is continued and, and, and addressed. We need to communicate with our patients who might not have an educational level or a medical background. Um, and if we're able to communicate effectively, then that's only going to increase the medication compliance, the patient outcome, patient satisfaction, all of those things. So in many ways, I actually think that we should be training doctors a lot more like we're training artists and accepting people with backgrounds or trying to seek out those people with more of those artistic backgrounds, because I think that they do have that advantage and make really, really good physicians. Wow, really, really, really insightful, Mike. And uh, I'm thinking back to my days on the admissions committee at, at Cornell. I, I like to think I did my part in trying to diversify or helping to diversify the medical student body. Because whenever, you know, even in just like two, three years, I thought I had good grades when I applied to medical school. And then the grades and the MCATs just kept going up and up and up. And I'm like, after a certain point, we got to start broadening our conception of what a good physician means. It can't, like, how can you go from 3.9 to 3.95? Like, what? why is that meaningful? It's not. I mean, truly, it's really not. So all that really, really resonates. I think a couple other things I wanted to say is living in the gray. This is incredibly critical. I'm finding this out sort of the hard way in business, right? In business, we call it 80-20 rule, where you have to be comfortable with uncertainty. You're never going to have 100% of the information. You might get to 80 and you just have to take that leap of faith. I think doctors and PhDs in general, especially the science and math oriented ones, sometimes struggle with this. And a very, very important component of being a caring, compassionate, efficient physician or a clinician is just being comfortable realizing that you're never going to have the perfect information in order to make a decision. And if you are craving that perfect information, you're just going to stifle you know, your decision making and probably lead to poor outcomes. That's my hunch. Really, really resonate with, with a lot of what you said. We could keep talking for hours, but for the sake of time, I'll pass it on to Alex for a couple of questions, but great conversation so far. Thank you. Thank you, Chad, and thank you, Mike, for sharing those insights and, and sharing your story. Yes, super interesting. And uh, I guess I want to reflect on one of the points that you've mentioned around communication and how communication is so important to our jobs, to our job as physicians. I think from so many different conversations that I've had with medical doctors who went off the beaten path, they've mentioned that communication was actually one of the most important and transferable skills that they took from medicine to business or to their career elsewhere. Uh, I remember talking to a McKinsey consultant and she was saying that how her training in emergency medicine really taught her to build quick rapport with patients. And she used that to build quick rapport uh, with colleagues in the business world. So certainly very much appreciate your point on that, Mike. I want to go back to art a bit. Mike, you were featured in uh, Art from the Frontlines, 
visual expressions from medical professionals during the COVID-19 pandemic, which was an exhibit that highlighted artwork created by healthcare professionals during the COVID-19 pandemic. Taking a deeper look into the struggles and everyday battles that the healthcare industry faced at the height of the pandemic, I imagine that it must have been a very uh, tough time because you're faced with this deadly disease and there is so much uncertainty. I think this exhibit uh, really honored healthcare uh, workers' contributions and celebrated the ways in which they coped during that difficult time. So, Mike, I would love to understand from your experience during the early stage of the pandemic, how did you balance your art and your medical duty? And how did that experience of practicing medicine in the middle of a new disease pandemic influence your drawing and your art? Yeah. Oh, thank you, Alex. I mean, that was, it was just the darkest time of my life. It was terrible. I think, I think what ended up happening was, so like art for me initially was very much a didactic thing in terms of how I tied it with my medicine. And I was teaching myself medicine and then it kind of transitioned into, I was teaching, you know, my medical students, my residents medicine. Um, and my patients. But then I also found that as I was rotating through clinical rotations as a medical student, and then as an intern and then residency, my art was also taking on kind of a catharsis. It was a way for me to kind of vent and process difficult things. Because even well before the pandemic, as as you guys know, like residency is really brutal. You were physically stretched, right? You're doing 24-hour shifts, and you're um, running on fumes, and you're exhausted. Um, you're mentally, you know, stretched because you're trying to understand and interpret labs and physical findings and and treat folks. But then there's this like emotional kind of uh, heaviness that comes with it. You're you're experiencing death and and giving horrible news to people. And you know, there's no way to prepare for that. And it's unfortunately not really well. Well, I guess I can only speak to my experience, but I don't think there's a real good way to teach that. Um, and as as Chad kind of alluded to before, I think unfortunately in medicine, people do tend to, um, I guess, hide or or um, gloss over anything that's not considered positive or strong appearing. And and I I came into medicine with such a different background. Like everything that I was dealing with emotionally or, or otherwise, I wore on my sleeve. I was the first to say I don't understand something. I was the first to say I don't get this. I was the first to say like this is really sad and this makes me really upset. So I think I, I came to it almost with this um, fragility that was difficult because it emotionally was, was, you know, stretching me very thin. But it also allowed me the flexibility to then say, like, wow, this is really heavy. How do I process this? And so I started to draw some graphic novel type pieces initially kind of in, in early, early residency days that were heavier um, to really kind of narrate and process some of the experiences that I witnessed, experienced, you know, went through. And that all felt like a microcosm of this massive pandemic and the, the things that we were witnessing and seeing. And it was, it was, it was hellacious, just like terrible. So what I realized was that a lot of what got me through, like in the days there, were my colleagues and just seeing their bravery. And so my art started to become this this outlet this kind of way of like putting it down on paper so that i could walk away from it and so i I found myself wanting to draw the people that i found really brave around me which were my colleagues 
So I began to do a lot of these kind of portraits and I wanted to tell their stories as well. And so I would kind of ask them a little bit about what they were going through. And so I would, I would add some text and stuff in the background. And so it, it, it was kind of this like totally unthought out, just like impromptu um, process that I started to do on like in like the 12 hours that I was not there. You know, it's like 12 hours there, like 12 hours back. And it would be, you know, how do you process this? How do you, how do you go home and go to sleep? How do you come away from that? And I would take it with me. So when I put it down on the paper, I could close it. I could try and get some rest and then I can try and go back to it. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. And that's such a fascinating uh, story. And I think, I think the point that you've mentioned around art as a catharsis and as a tool to process is so powerful. I think Shad wrote a lot about uh, the early stage of the pandemic, his experience there and the impact of the pandemic on, on healthcare professionals. I mean, it's a devastating impact. We're facing a disease. We didn't have vaccines for that. There is so much uncertainty there. Personally, can imagine drawing some similarities to my experience practicing in Syria on the front lines during the war. So certainly appreciate your point there. And I, I think I just wish we are taught more skills to that enable us to kind of process, to emotionally regulate during periods of really difficult and stressful times. So I think it's like really one of the these most important skills that we're not being taught. And I think even in the business school, we have a couple of classes in the second year that are dedicated to really teaching students these skills. One of them is called Leadership and Happiness, and Shad really likes that class. And so I think that's just such an important topic. I, I love your artwork. I think my favorites are the anatomical drawings with the with the paint splatter. I got myself the cranial nerves one. So I really appreciate your work there. And uh, Mike, as someone who's who's passionate about art and medicine, I'd love to know what are your plans uh, for the future of combining these two different worlds together? Any interesting and important exhibitions that, uh, that we should uh, look forward to? And how do you think about positioning yourself as a medical doctor and creating like a niche within that art world? I mean, first of all, thank you. And thank you for, for purchasing one of my prints. I, I really do appreciate it. Um, you know, part of the reason why I like talking to folks like you guys so much is because you guys inspire me and, and you make it clear and obvious that you don't, you know, because you have the MD or the DO or whatever you have after your name and because you identify as a um, medical person, that doesn't necessarily define and kind of uh, box you into doing just those things. And I always say to the, you know, to the medical students and to the interns, it's like, you had to kind of display all of who you were to get into medical school. And you're this talented ballerina, violinist, artist, you know, rock climber. And you tout all of those skills about you and how you are so well-rounded. And then as soon as you get into medical school, it's kind of like all that gets like smushed and that's irrelevant and no longer celebrated or exercised or practiced. And it makes me really sad. It's, 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 it's sad because that means that that person has become more two-dimensional, but more so, it's sad because I think it limits them from becoming the better physician that they could be. Because the physician who can't relate to the patient or understand the world in the ways that they were experiencing it outside of these medical choice exam, uh, multiple choice exams, and you know, textbook, you know, paragraphs, is not going to be able to treat the patient the best way possible. They're going to see them, you know, very, very two dimensional as well. But um, in terms of what I hope to do, and I'm still trying to figure out what's going to make me happiest. But I'm at the tail end of my fellowship. So I finished fellowship in June. So a good like 12 years of training is coming to an end, which is nice. 
Um, I'm going to be working clinically because I love patients um, and I would feel very sad after my training if I didn't have the opportunity to do that. So I'm going to be working clinically as an endocrinologist here in New York City. But I also hope to do other things on the side, including I really want to make a number of books. I would like to make a didactic book that's much more approachable, much more visual, much more fun um, for medical students. Um, and then I also want to make a graphic novel kind of depicting my personal arc and how I've kind of found myself where I'm at today and kind of the steps it took there in addition to what we went through during COVID, which I think is um, something I just want to document. I feel like it's, it's important for me to do that. Um, and then outside of that, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm open to a lot of ideas. I, I really enjoy uh, teaching. I love the medical student demographic. Um, and I love patients. So I, I want to continue a clinical, a robust clinical practice with, you know, opportunities to do other artistic, creative endeavors that kind of blend both my passion. Thank you, Mark. That's so exciting. And we're super excited to, to kind of like uh, watch from the sides uh, all your, your art and creative pieces come about. So uh, we'll be looking forward to that. And uh, thanks for sharing. I guess I want to tie, tie the conversation back to a point that you've mentioned that it's important for medical schools to take elements from art education and integrate them into basically the medical education curriculum itself. And this is something that we talk about during the we talked about during previous episodes where we we've mentioned the importance of perhaps looking at medicine like a platform degree where it would be similar to a PharmD or an MBA and it would allow you to go into different trajectories after you finish. So would love to understand uh, from your perspective what should change about education so that we can encourage more medical doctors to go down a creative path because it is something that's so important. So we'd love to kind of learn how you think about this. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I'm very passionate about this and I have a lot of strong views. I, I, I mean, I think, I think medical education is ripe for change. Um, and I think a lot of it has changed and evolved since I've left medical school, honestly. But I, I think it's very archaic. I think it's very hierarchical. And I think a lot of it is continued out of tradition and not out of benefit or data for why we're doing it. That these are my views uh, from, from a lot of different perspectives. But to get granular in terms of how I think, you know, training, the training I had in, in, in a lot of my art courses in undergrad, I actually think are very applicable to what could be infused into a lot of my medical school courses. And I'll give you an example. Um, well, for one, I, I want to say this. I think, unfortunately, what ends up happening because there's so much weight placed on uh, standardized exams like steps and so on. When you incorporate some of the arts and the humanities into medical school courses, they get brought on as the quote unquote soft skills. And they don't get, they get short, short shrift because they're not necessarily, or they're not um, weighted or, or pitched or, or given the credit for uh, actually truly advancing the medical student because they're not getting farther on their st step scores or they're not studying for their exams and it's not actually going to um, tangibly help them is the way that it's unfortunately pitched. So the first thing is we need to make it actually weighted in that way. So we need to somehow incorporate it so that it's actually tangibly going to help them um, so that they don't feel like they're quote unquote wasting time on the soft skills of medicine. Once that's addressed, I, I think that um, one anecdote I, I will tell you is uh, when I was in art school, I took a course called color theory. And one of the activities we had to do was there was a, a Vermeer, a classical painter Vermeer, who's known for his way of painting ways, um, beautiful light sources and shadows. Um, we were given a, a Vermeer painting. We were said, we were told, um, now make this monochromatic 
and um, basically create a value scale of paint from the darkest of darks with gradations down to the lightest of lights and correlate the shapes that you see in the Vermeer painting from value into the swaths of, of value that you've just painted and basically create a collage based off of that. I hope I explained that well. It's a little confusing. Does that make sense? So uh, from, from there, uh, what you're basically doing is you're, you're training yourself to see shapes in positive and negative space based on juxtaposition of value shift and change. And then those abutting shapes create contour. So if, if when I'm sitting in my art class learning that, I am then transported, or I was transported back to that sitting in my art class when I was sitting in my fourth year medical school class of radiology. And the chest x-rays up on the board, and the teacher is trying to help us see these weird shapes. And I'm like, oh my God, this is literally one for one what I was doing, you know, six years ago, whatever it was in, in, in art school. And I thought this would be really interesting to actually test. Now, I am no scientist. I am, um, you know, not a big uh, researching kind of guy. I'm a little bit more on the, the clinical side, but I thought this would be fun to try. So there was a bunch of NYU medical students in a humanities course, and they asked if I could talk to them. And I said, I'd love to try something out. And I did exactly that. I put up the chest x-ray. I said, can you guys just jot down what you might see? And then I did the experiment with the Vermeer painting. I had them do the collage. And I put the chest x-ray up again. And they all found either more findings or more subtle findings after we did our experiment. And you know, it was a small N, and I'm sure the p-value wouldn't have worked out or whatever it may be. But for me, it was validating because I really believe that there's more than just the quote-unquote soft skills that art can teach us as physicians. Fantastic. Mike, thank you so much for this. I think this is this is such an interesting perspective. And personally, I have learned a lot from this conversation in terms of thinking uh, about the integration of art into the medical curriculum and what skills we can take from there. Would love to uh, maybe share with our audience who uh, who could be thinking about uh, going into the arts world or developing artistic skills, and they may want to reach out to you. How can the audience follow your impact, and how can they uh, reach out? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I post most of my work on Instagram. It's uh, Mike Natter, and then I also have a Twitter, which is Mike underscore Natter, um, and I have a website, MikeNatterMedical.com, and so I, I post uh, some blogs and um, a lot of my art there, and and just kind of my meanderings. And I'm always happy to to field any emails or DMs or uh, those kinds of things. Fantastic, Alex. That was such a great conversation with Mike. I really, really enjoyed that. And, and before I dive in, I, I just want to say that usually we have on investors or entrepreneurs and uh, folks within the business realm. And while I really enjoy those conversations, uh, it's important for us to show to our audience members that going off the beaten path is very inclusive and inclusive of all career paths. We want to have more artists on or comedians on or actors on or musicians on our podcast. So if you have any suggestions, feel free to, to reach out to us and let us know. And I honestly learned a lot from Mike. Uh, I realized that artists very much live in the gray uh, rather than in, in sort of a black and white world. And uh, in art, you, you can't reach 100% certainty. It's inherently a subjective profession that relies a lot on um, intuition, pattern recognition, creativity, and not necessarily on mathematical objective truths, although I'm sure some artists out there would object to that characterization. There's always exceptions to the rule, but I'm just speaking in generalities here. And I think uh, 
physicians can learn a lot from artists. I think we, we need to make physicians more comfortable with uncertainty, for example, while, while striving to collect as much information as possible. But waiting for perfect information can, you know, in many cases, stunt decision making. And in an important situation where a patient, for example, is not doing very well, I think making decisions where you have 80% of the information rather than, you know, 90, 95, or 100% can potentially save a patient's life. I think it's really a triangulation of experience, timing, creativity, and knowledge that matters. But that creativity and timing and, and comfort with uncertainty is incredibly important. And oftentimes it's not really uh, instilled in us during our medical education or our residency education. So I think that that's a learning we can take away from someone like Mike and from artists in general. But over to you, Alex. Thanks, Chad. That's actually a very powerful kind of takeaway point. And I absolutely want to double down on the inclusiveness point that you've mentioned. Like, we can think about a lot of very interesting names to have on our podcast, but we only know 5% of, of the ecosystem out there. So Please, 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 if you have good suggestions, just shoot them our way, either on social media or on our email. We, we can be easily reached and uh, we look forward to hearing your suggestions. But Chad, I guess my takeaway point uh, that I really liked about the conversation is I love how Mike was able to use the general need for de-stressing and emotional regulation, essentially the need for venting off to power his creativity. So for example, Mike mentioned during the interview that, you know, he uses painting and art as a tool for catharsis, essentially a way to vent and process kind of difficult things and difficult emotions because residency is really hard and like taking care of really sick patients can have like a massive toll on you personally. So I really like this point and I think you know, generally we are just because of like shortcomings with our education system and with, with our society, kind of our common thinking frameworks, we are not equipped well with the right tools to manage stress. And so being able to first develop those tools in your toolkit and use them in a manner that allows us to be productive on the creative side is something that I think all of us should aspire to. I mean, it's certainly something that I started aspiring to after a conversation with Mike. So um, I really kind of uh, enjoyed that point and appreciated it. And I think that's, that's going to be my takeaway. But that's it on our side. And uh, to our audience members, join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music. And to get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next time.